But of course, some of these path dependencies are also institutional and political. We've got used to using these infrastructures over decades and decades. So our automatic tendency is to perpetuate them and to adapt them. And there are lots of successful stories of adaptation of existing infrastructures. Welcome to Co-Water Voice. We voice critical views and marginalize aspirations within the water development sector. CoWater is a postdoctoral research program funded by the European Union's Horizon 2020 Research and Innovation Program, Marie Skodowska Curie Action. CoWater examines conflicts over water resources and water territories and seeks to understand the conditions of possibility for turning conflicts into civil society co production. I am Pratimi Vidyatmi Putri, the University of Kassel in Witzenhausen. This is the third season of Co-Water Voice. Let's talk about water in the city, urban water and the contestations around it. I have been questioning the impacts of modernity on the imagination of urban future as it cannot be separated from pro-growth agenda in the development. Now that we are facing increasing disasters due to climate change, along with the unprecedented scale of urban poverty and destructions of forests and rural villages in the global south, there have to be alternative ways to live in cities. In this season, a longer one until the end of the year, I have conversations with scholars who have actively been promoting new ways to approach the urban problems and highlighting in their research some genuine innovations. We also talk about different ways of organizing technical and technological matters for water management, in which citizens have more room to participate and help shape the future of their cities. I hope to resonate and echo the spirits carried in these conversations into the city I love, Jakarta. Kotaku Jakarta Kota On this episode, we are lucky to have Timothy Moss. He is a senior researcher at the Integrative Research Institute on Transformations of Human Environment Systems at the Humboldt University of Berlin and honorary professor at the Leibniz University of Hanover. He is the author of Remaking Berlin that was published in 2020. This conversation with examples from Berlin shows only a tiny, tiny part of his knowledge about transformations and dynamics of urban infrastructures. For more good sources about Berlin, you can watch, for example, some films of his research project funded by the Gerda Henkel Foundation. To begin with, perhaps you could tell us or update us about the most pressing issues of today within the Berlin water system. Thank you, Prathivi, uh, for, for inviting me to be part of this exciting podcast series you have. In terms of the first question, I think 
we have a number of pressing issues and many of them have to do with climate change and the impact of climate change on water availability uh, in the city of Berlin. Um, so there are considerations about not so much the short term, but very much the long term, the medium and long term availability of water resources, because Berlin depends on groundwater, which sounds like a good base, but that groundwater comes through rivers, uh, primarily through bank filtration, and the rivers are fed by rainwater, obviously. And so there is concern about that. There's also concern about the ending of lignite mining, uh, mining uh, upstream of the city. And with the ending of lignite mining, um, uh, mining water is no longer being pumped into one of the two main rivers that flow through the city, through the River Spree. And so there is concern that the end of mining, curiously, could jeopardize um, water supply and the regularity of water supply in the future. And I guess another big challenge uh, that Berlin's facing, also to do with climate change, is, is to do with stormwater events. So sudden um, events, sudden uh, rainwater, uh, heavy falls of rainwater falling on the city and the sewer system not being capable of coping with such extreme uh, rainfall events. And so there is a lot of consideration into ways of uh, retaining water locally, rainwater locally, and um, exploring ways in which not only the water utility, but also local inhabitants can do their bit to, uh, to retain and even reuse rainwater on site, uh, rather than letting it get into the sewer system and causing all sorts of flooding problems in buildings as a result. So you talk about this as ecological problems. There is a pressure because of this climate that has been, or, or issues that is, was not really included within the modern planning uh, system that I see. But how about the uh, infrastructure in Berlin? I mean, there is also a limit to infrastructure. And the way I see it is that how much infrastructure can resolve problems that you have mentioned, even without think, thinking about this climate change, even if you think this climate is stable, but there are still lots of problems within this uh, infrastructural management. I wonder at the discursive level also within the management, what then the orientation for, for solving this, these problems? Uh, because you have, you have indicated that that there's also uh, opportunities that inhabitants can, can also put some collective, collective actions. But how about from, from, the, from the government side and how, how it has been perceived, these problems? I'm a historian, so I often look back before I look forward. And if you look back to the origins of Berlin's uh, infrastructure systems for water, you'll see we've had a uh, centralized water system since the 1850s and a centralized sewer system or sanitation system since the 1870s. And we're still basically using the essential structures around that in terms of uh, water mains and water purification on the water supply side and the water sewer, the wastewater sewers and the uh, sewage treatment plants on, on the sanitation side. And those infrastructures have powerful legacies and uh, they have they uh, also exude powerful path dependencies as we call them 
And these path dependencies can be physical, though they can be material in the sense that you have these infrastructures. So there is an important need to use them because they're already available. They're performing some important tasks. They continue to perform. But of course, some of these path dependencies are also institutional and political. We've got used to using these infrastructures over decades and decades. So our automatic tendency is to perpetuate them and to adapt them. And there are lots of successful stories of adaptation of existing infrastructures. So, for example, we used not to have sewage treatment plants. We used to use uh, sewage, sewage on irrigation fields. And with the introduction of sewage treatment plants from the 1920s onwards, they were put at the endpoints of the sewage of the uh, pumping sewers. So that's a good example of, a, of an adaptation of the existing system. I think one of the challenges today is how much of these new challenges in terms of water quality, water quantity uh, uh, can be dealt with with existing infrastructures and how far do we need new infrastructures, perhaps of a decentral nature, of a localized or a decentered nature, that can complement the existing ones. Because the idea of serving Berlin with a completely new set of infrastructures and ignoring the existing ones is just a no-go, because there is so much has been invested in them and they have they perform important functions. So what's interesting for me is, is questions about the adaptability of existing infrastructures and their ability to take on new technologies, for example, for retaining rainwater locally, um, to in order to make them more future-proof. So you referred just now to how far local inhabitants can be uh, enrolled in these kind of activities. Well, there are, there are policies to um, encourage uh, property owners to um, percolate more rainwater on their property by making the, the um, surfaces more permeable or by having green roofs or by even recycling some of their rainwater for various low-grade water uses. And that's, that's an interesting sort of uh, direction in that water or rainwater in this case is no longer purely the responsibility of the wastewater utility uh, as before, but has become a responsibility of homeowners or also park operators uh, and even commercial um, uh, um, commercial um, 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 entrepreneurs who are seeking new ways of minimizing their uh, costs uh, for sewage treatment. And you can get away with that. You were talking about the policy as well. In Berlin, we have, for example, a split tariff. So you actually save a bit of water if you can prove that you are saving, that you are retaining rainwater on site. And so you pay a less money uh, to the utility for that than you would if that rainwater was going into the sewer and it was going to be treated basically like regular household or industrial sewage. So you mean retaining water is not only to recharge the groundwater, but also the, the authority encourage them to reuse it? It's partly to recharge the local uh, groundwater. It's partly also to minimize the load of uh, on the sewers yeah, after okay. stormwater events. So, so slow down the process of water or rainwater entering the sewers. That's probably the prime reason. Um, but it's also to explore possibilities of reusing uh, rainwater, either obviously for gardens, for urban gardens or, or for, for green areas. Um, um, I'm thinking also of sort of using rainwater to um, uh, uh, to um, counteract effects of drought 
Uh, we're going through a heat wave in the summer mm -hmm, right now, mm -hmm. and that's creating a lot of stress for mm -hmm. for trees and other forms of other plant mm -hmm. life in cities. So thinking of uh, creative ways of retaining water locally so that they can be used for watering those kind of plants is, is, a, is an important way forward. But also for using it, for example, for flushing toilets um, uh, and uh, and things like that. So there, there are encouraging processes there. And in Berlin, we have a very interesting uh, institutional innovation, which is called the Rainwater Agency, okay, which is really worth following up. And they are, mm -hmm. um, it's called the Regenwasseragentur in German, the Rainwater mm -hmm. Agency in English. Mm -hmm. And this is a, a, a new agency created, I think, 2018, mm -hmm. created by both the city authorities, that's called the Senate Department for Environment in Berlin, but also the local water utility, which is a municipal well, interesting. water utility. Yeah. Thanks, just to share and this. And they they have both uh, formed together, uh, form and finance, and supervise this um, this agency, which is which is a kind of platform to encourage all users of property, but also all users of water in Berlin, to engage more with uh, creative and progressive and uh, retentive ways of using ra rainwater in the city. You have told me about the problems in some part of Berlin, this uh, declining water use and underutilized water infrastructures. This is post-90s. Would you please tell us about it a bit more? Because this is also what I call limit to infrastructure in a way that, you know, you imagine that in, in the, the cities of the South, the in, there are many informal settlements. So Putting down pipes is not an easy work. This is like, uh, or irregularities, but this is interesting story when it's there, but then it was underutilized. Maybe you could you could tell a bit more about it. It's an interesting lesson, this story, uh, to, that you, shows the, how much planning you need to put into infrastructure and how you cannot always know what's coming around the corner because uh, conventionally with infrastructure, Normally, we, we adopt the approach of build and supply. So we build the infrastructure and we supply the residents. And the assumption always is you never have enough infrastructure. And if you have built a little bit too much, it'll only be a few years until, thanks to population growth and industrialization and all the rest, this, uh, this, uh, this slack will be taken up effectively. Uh, and what you saw in Berlin, but also East Germany, and indeed all of the post-socialist countries in Eastern Europe after 1990, was a massive drop in water use, uh, and a drop of about 40%, so that's 4-0, 40%, over a period, a very short period, about five years after the 1990s. And why was that? Was it because people were all of a sudden uh, using more, uh, water saving appliances? Well, in some part, yes. But the main reason was a massive uh, um, process of deindustrialization. So you found a collapse of industrial production, particularly of a, of a primary kind. So the kind of industrial production that used a lot of water, that collapsed a lot in um, Eastern Europe. Uh, following the end of the Soviet Union, the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that also affected Berlin. Berlin previously, prior to 1990, had a lot of water intensive uh, industry. And that collapsed uh, within a very short period of time, leading to this collapse of water supply. So that's a kind of good news in the sense that, you know, we're using less water, so there's less chance of water stress. But the problem was then, what, what does it create as consequential problems for the infrastructure that is built for a far larger 
through flow of drinking water and a far larger through flow of sewage. And basically it creates new problems, problems of obviously of an economic nature because people are, uh, the utility is receiving less money for the water it's supplying. So it responded by create, by increasing prices quite dramatically for sewage and drinking water in order to fund the infrastructure it had running. But it created all sorts of technical problems because if you have sewers, uh, sewage that is uh, flowing too slowly through the sewer, that increases substantially the risk of blockages. And that's what Berlin has been experiencing there. And similarly with drinking water, if the drinking water does not flow fast enough through the pipes, you have problems of corrosion and you have problems of, that, that compromise the quality of that drinking water. So basically ever since the Berlin water utilities had to respond with an kind of emergency measure, which they call artificial consumption, which is basically flushing the sewers and flushing the drinking water pipes with fresh water. And uh, that's, you know, that, that is really uh, unecological and it is obviously not a sustainable solution, but basically they have no um, short-term solution to that problem. Uh, in the medium term, they, they are addressing it by um, minimizing the size of the pipes so they can put sort of inliners in sewers and inliners in water pipes to give them a smaller diameter and of course by giving them a smaller diameter you're increasing the through flow with these with the same amount of water but that's always tricky with with sewers in particular because they have a special design so we've had problems of um, underutilization of infrastructure which is a very unfamiliar problem for urban planners and and civil engineers alike. And we've, uh, this is in Berlin, it's been a bit of an issue, but it's been far more serious in other, in other cities in Eastern Germany, where you've had a massive depopulation as alongside de-industrialization. Um, would like to, to continue this on interdependencies of water bodies, water surfaces. You have explained in the beginning that the source of water is groundwater and the groundwater is fed by river flows and the rainwater, but pollutions would always be carried with, with water. Pollution is just one example of how problems might occur outside Berlin. And in, in what ways Berlin have institutions or kind of body of government that uh, regulate this with uh, with other areas or other Bundesland maybe. And I, I also wonder in what way civil society push, because you also mentioned about innovations and experimentations that is, have been going on. But I also wonder how, how this come into configurations of governance. Yeah, there's, um, I've, it's important to understand, I think there's a, there's a context in Germany and the EU in general for quite strong water regulation overall. So the general quality of river waters, although it, it is problematic in parts, is relatively quite good. And the, the quality of drinking water and also the sewage, the sort of uh, treated sewage is also of a, of a relatively high quality, I mean, relative to other parts of the world. So, so so that, that is an achievement of past uh, infrastructure, infrastructure builders and water regulators. So we have quite strong water regulation and it's organized in Germany at a state level. So not at the federal level, but the state level. And Berlin is a city state in itself and it's surrounded by another state called Brandenburg. So I guess the issue there is, a, is one of 
coordination between two states that have very, very different interests, one for sort of supplying a metropolis and the other for dealing with the, the, um, with the, with the demands of a metropolis in its center, which is Brandenburg. So, so the relationship on that issue has been always a bit tense, uh, also historically, uh, with Brandenburg very concerned about having to pay the price ecologically for supplying Berlin with water, but also for dealing with the wastewaters that come from Berlin. But at the same time, Berlin, because of its dependence on local groundwater, and it comes from local rivers, being very sensitive towards any kind of pollution, particularly entering those two waterways that, um, that come into Berlin. So um, I think that those, those are issues that are always prominent in the discussions. And there are fairly regular discussions between administrators on both sides in, in both states about that. But that cannot conceal the sort of structural difference of interest uh, that, that you see in the two states there. And regarding civil society, I think they have a really important role to play as kind of watchdogs in terms of the issues emerging. So they've been very, very, for example, now looking at the sort of effluent coming from factory farms in Brandenburg and entering watercourses that may or may not damage uh, water, uh, water quality in Berlin. They're also uh, very uh, concerned about the water quantity challenges of the new Tesla factory that we have uh, just outside Berlin that is demanding huge amounts of water um, in one very particular area that's very important for water supply for Berlin and the surrounding area. And so I think these, um, there is a very active um, um, civil society movement for the environment uh, that, is, that is keeping a very watchful eye of water quality and water quantity problems and is uh, does not uh, recoil from criticizing either the utility or the regulating authorities for any what they see as oversights uh, in, in terms of assuring water quality water and water quantity issues. You somehow hit to hit these issues of shifting costs. Planners that have been trying to put uh, degrowth or post-growth as a new ethic has uh, raised this uh, term of shifting costs. So to see all the costs that have been externalized by all this process that is uh, proponents to growth, you're talking about water scarcity because of industry, etc. But then to measure this cost uh, to ecological impacts, social impacts, also intergener intergenerations is a bit difficult. I mean, we, we kind of need uh, a new currency in, in, in to put uh, responsibility to who should deal with all this cost that is unimaginable before. And the hidden costs, I think it's important to know that although it sounds like a success story in Berlin and Germany and elsewhere, a lot of the reason, of course, for why we've had deindustrialization here is because there's been industrialization somewhere else. So a lot of the water exactly. that we are saving yeah. here in Germany is actually being uh, used elsewhere to produce the kind of goods that we're now importing that we didn't before, yeah? So whilst we can get very self-congratulatory here in Germany about our low levels of water, our declining levels of water use, the notion of hidden water 
and I don't really like the term virtual water because it isn't virtual at all, but the, the hidden water in the yeah. products that it's we use, point. that yeah. we import, that we buy, needs to be studied. So that brings you to this question about what needs researching and how do you approach that? And I think one need, we need, if we're taking a broader look at water use in a region, we need to be looking beyond um, the actual water that goes through the pipes that are provided here that we use that serve our individual homes and, and businesses and so on. And we need to be thinking also of what, how much water is in the kind of products that we, that we, that we buy. And that shows itself particularly in food products, you know. So if you are, if we are buying strawberries, for example, out of season in Europe, they're often coming from Spain and they're consuming huge amounts of water uh, in areas that don't that don't have a lot of water. That's the distinguishing factor, not only the amount of water, but where it's if there is water stress in those areas. And so we need to be thinking much more about tracing the water in the food. So I think, you know, methodologically, that's an interesting way. Other people have done it as well. But that's that's an, an important part of new water research. I think uh, tracing um, everyday uses of water is a very important way of getting in there. You were talking about uh, authoritarian states and difficulties in getting a hand on civil society or at least uh, civil use of water. I think everyday uses of water, everybody's using water in their, in their everyday and researching how people do that and how that has changed and what their concerns are about water and how, what measures they take um, to create resilience in water use, whether it's through water saving or using less water or using water at different times of day or buying in different types of water, you know, from tankers and, and from, from street water pumps and all the rest. I think that's, that's really interesting, following water uses. That's more ethnographic, obviously. Um, I'm kind of interested in, in sort of following the technologies and seeing how they're being used in different ways at different times so I have a there's a nice story about the um, street water pump uh, that you see in Berlin and uh, I don't know if you've been to Berlin but if you do walk around the central parts of Berlin you'll often come across these uh, street water pumps that uh, look look like a sort of something out of history um, but many of them are still active and the reason why they're still active is because not only because they're connected to the groundwater is because their functions have changed over time. And whereas originally in the 19th century, they were built to um, enable people to supply themselves with their regular drinking water supply. Uh, they, were, they were then used for, for animals a lot, for horses, where they were pulling carriages for, to, to, as a kind of uh, petrol pumps, the old style petrol pumps for filling your horse up with water. Uh, they were then used in crisis situations to, to complement uh, water supply when it was damaged by bombs or other kinds of crises in the First and Second World War. And um, after the war, um, they were still used. Um, uh, after the blockade of West Berlin, uh, it was important to secure water supply. So a lot of them were, were retained in West Berlin. And then I can remember when I moved to Berlin in the 1980s, they were used for washing cars. So again, another completely new function. And today they are being reactivated and used again to water trees that are suffering from the effects of drought from climate change that I was referring to earlier. So that's, you know, you've got this simple, humble street water pump 
that you might think had lost its original function, it has lost its original function 120 years ago, is still being used. And it's still being used because it's being used for different functions. Yeah. And what I think is really nice is if you, you know, if you confronted the original designer of the street water pump from 150 years ago and said, your water pumps are going to live on and they're going to be used for watering trees, they'd have thought you were nuts. Uh, but that's the truth, you know. So that there's a lesson in there about what we design our new infrastructures for and allowing for uses and for functions that we cannot dream of today. We cannot dream of them. Yeah. And yet thinking these, these don't get rid of these infrastructures too early because they may adopt new functions. In many other cities, these street water pumps have long gone because they've been dismantled because they were regarded as surplus. They were regarded as anachronistic. And how do you water your street uh, trees in those cities? You can't because there are no street water pumps anymore. So there you are. It's an interesting lesson about the uh, the long-term legacies and potentials of, uh, of old infrastructure. So that's another technique to follow these te um, um, technologies and see how they can be adapted. And in terms of the wastewater, we're seeing interesting experiments now in Berlin for using the old irrigation farms that were used way up until the uh, 1970s, um, to some extent in East Germany. And um, we're, they're being reused now for all sorts of wild animals, for landscape development, but also for local water retention and, and also energy crops. Anything that doesn't really enter the, um, the food chain because they're contaminated sites, of course. And so that's another interesting way of using these irrigation fields that were previously used for irrigating raw sewage and are now used for energy crops and, land, and biodiversity and landscape development. I'd like to close this conversation with some questions on urban agriculture, how much you think the cities, uh, citizens see it as an opportunity to, to make a, a closer loop of food systems and water systems. Is it really a movement or, or you think that's too small for a change? No, I, I think it is quite a powerful movement. We have an interesting project to the Institute I work with, Ari Thesis, uh, called Eddie City, which is about edible, the edible city, basically. And it's about urban gardening as a, as a new trend that is establishing and developing all sorts of new technologies and practices and, and, and mindsets around what you can eat in the city. Uh, there's also movements for encouraging foraging in the city. So looking for berries and nuts and fruits and stuff that grow in public places that you can, that you can harvest yourself. And in terms of in terms of water, I think it's interesting how the ideas of greening the city and having green roofs and uh, greening the sides of buildings as well is being integrated into ways looking at imaginative ways of of generating uh, urban food, basically, and growing your own food. And of course, that's connected to debates about minimizing uh, import costs and transportation of food in the cities as well. As a historian, I think it's kind of interesting. To see this when I, you know, when just only 30 years ago, nobody was interested in allotments in Berlin. Well, just the old, yeah. old, mm -hmm. older generation, it was regarded as rather conservative. Um, um, people who were involved in allotments who were very keen on being members of associations, of keeping them nice and yeah. trim and tidy and all the rest. And today it's really difficult to get an allotment. And, and the demographic has changed completely. There are lots of young mm. people 
of an educated background, progressive politics, who are very keen to get allotments and, and engage in new forms of urban gardening. And they're very different. I mean, they it's not about keeping um, trim grass edges. It's very much about, and, and using fertilizers, it's very much about growing their own food and and experimenting with new kinds of, uh, of greenery in the city. So I've seen that just in, since I've come to live in Berlin, I've seen a massive change in attitudes towards uh, urban allotments and, uh, and, and urban farming more generally. very happy with this conversation because you give great examples on possible rooms for collaborations.